Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Those damn loons won't go away. They just just show up every week. Well, loons are pretty, though. They are pretty. Yeah, I like loons. They make pretty sounds. Yeah. Apparently, they can't walk on land because their legs aren't made for it. Get out of town. Yeah. Weird, eh? How how am I just learning that fact now? I don't know. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me, as usual, is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hi, my lovelies. Oh, lovelies now. Mm -hmm. Yep. Our beautiful group of listeners. Here's a disclaimer. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. I'm disclaiming. <laughs> so that's your wife that does that disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. I don't know why people like it when you do that. <laughs> I don't know why people like anything now you're, that you're we're stuck doing it. I know. Forever. This is episode 81, as opposed to 80 or 82. Numerically, that is one digit above 80. Above 80. Below 82. 1981. Oh. The year Charles and Diana got married. Yeah, I remember that. I'm old enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember not giving a hoot then. Well, I got up early and watched. I loved it. So I was I. A, I was a big royal watcher. I was at my grandma's. We watched it at my my grandma Betty's. But uh, yeah, I just yeah, I I did not care. So let's get on with the show. De Courcy Island is one of the twenty-four minor southern Gulf islands, just northeast of Nanaimo, British Columbia. Valdez Island is to the east, and Vancouver Island proper is to the west. Mudge Island to the north, and Ruxton Island, just south, seem to be keeping the 460-acre island in place like bookends. Oh, that's adorable. Like how I wrote that there? I do. That's adorbs. De Corsi is accessible only by float plane or water taxi. How do you drive on water? It's not like a taxi, car taxi. It's a boat taxi. Ah, that makes more sense. This made the perfect location for a religious cult. 
to flourish in solitude. Oh, boy, we got a cult, do we? Yep. Culty. In the late 1920s, De Courcy Island was the home to the Aquarian Foundation, led by mysterious cult figure and English mystic named Brother Twelve. <laughs> wow, it's quite the name. Well, get used to it, because oh. he's the dude. Oh, goodness. They first set up shop close to Nanaimo in a small community called Cedar-by-the-Sea, but when Brother Twelve wanted more privacy, they moved the core group to DeCourcy Island. Oh, Cedar-by-the-Sea sounds lovely. It is. As with many cult leaders, Brother Twelve's power went to his head, and he was overtaken by lust of the flesh and greed. No, not a cult leader. If Amazing, right? If you can't trust a cult leader, who can you trust? It was said that when he fled, he left behind most of his fortune in gold, as it was way too much to carry. Some believe that Brother Twelve's riches still lay buried somewhere on DeCourcy Island. Wait a minute. I'll get, the, I'll get my show. This is the story of the cult of Brother Twelve. <laughs> how the hell have I... It's another one of... How have I never heard of this? Yeah. Much of the research for this episode comes from John Oliphant's superbly researched biography called Brother Twelve, The Strange Odyssey of a 20th Century Prophet, as well as the book's companion website. Also, I dove into Brother Twelve's own writings in his books, Foundation Letters and Teachings, The Three Truths, Unsigned Letters from an Elder Brother, and The Aquarian Foundation. All are fascinating reading. I could feel my third eye opening and have transcended the material world, and shall henceforth like to be called Prophet Pius of the Purest Poutine. Hmm, I'm concerned, Mike. Yeah, just... I'm concerned. I think you were more studying than you were researching. Well, just keep calling me Mike, then. Yeah, I'm going I'm to do that. I, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not really into it that deeply. But you, you, had, you read, like, all that? I did. Wow. I really read a lot about wow, that. Wow, wow. But it truly was interesting. Brother 12 painted an interesting picture of a utopian way of life which, of course, turned out to be so much malarkey. Huh, well, once again, if you can't trust a cult leader. Who was Brother Twelve? It, I was going to ask. He was born Edward Arthur Wilson on July 25th, 1878, in Birmingham, England, to proud parents Thomas Wilson and Sarah Ellen Pearsall. Sound lovely, by name, anyways. From John Oliphant's book, Brother Twelve, quote, his father was a master craftsman in the city's thriving metallic and brass bedstead trade and eventually formed his own company, becoming a prosperous manufacturer. The family lived in the district of Ladywood, then moved to Edgbaston, where Thomas and Sarah raised their son and two daughters in an atmosphere of strict religious devotion, end oh, quote. Hmm, one of those homes. Also, according to Oliphant's book, the Wilson family were fervent Irvingites. What the hell's an Irvingite? The Irvingites are a sect named for a deposed Presbyterian minister named Edward Irving, who died in 1834. They dislike the name Irvingites and minimize his importance in their founding. They call themselves the Catholic Apostolic Church. From the Catholic Encyclopedia on the site newadvent.com, quote, the sect arose from certain extraordinary manifestations of the spirit, tongues, prophecies, healings, even raising of the dead, which were said to have taken place during Irvin's ministry in London. End quote. Sounds fascinating. Raising of the dead, you right? say. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
The sect believed strongly in the physical existence of angels, studied the book of Revelations thoroughly, and has an intricate interpretation of the chief numerical symbols in the Bible. Well, that was a a lot to swallow. (laughs) There are still two Irvingite churches remaining, both in England. Wow. They continue preparing their devotees for the second coming of Christ that they believe will be very soon. Yeah, 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 any day. E.A. Wilson, Brother 12's common name, wrote and spoke extensively on how his time in the sect prepared him for his later spiritual calling. In Foundation Letters and Teachings, from a letter dated July 1926, also noted in Oliphant's book on Brother 12, he wrote, From early childhood I have been in touch with superphysical beings, and have often received visitations from highly developed beings, and these always brought me help or comfort or instruction. In their nature, these visitations were both visible and audible to my senses, but now I know that they were inner senses and not the outer, as I used to suppose. At first, I thought these were, quote, angels. But as I grew older and received teaching, I learned of the masters and their work for humanity. I learned how to know of the path of discipleship, and how we have to strive to live so as to be able to work with them and for them. There was no sympathy with such things in my home life, so I learned to keep them to myself. This direct contact continued all through my life from time to time, but it was not until much later that I learned the reason for these experiences and the teaching that was given me. End quote. My outer senses are telling me you're a bit bonkers <laughs> your inner senses no my outer senses are okay. telling, not my inner ones wilson earned most of his money in early adulthood as a sailor the sea was in his blood as when he was still a boy he learned to sail aboard a royal navy windjammer training ship oh that's pretty cool in 1902 he met and married a woman while in port in wellington new zealand they quickly had two children and five years later were living in victoria bc where Wilson first worked as a baggage clerk for the Dominion Express Company. Which, I mean, seems like a natural uh, progression. Meet in Wellington, New Jersey. Or, sorry, Wellington, New Zealand. Have kids. Then Victoria. B.C. Like, that's just like 1902 or whatever. That's exactly where everybody was migrating to. As it tends to do, the sea called to Wilson once again, and he took a job as a pilot on lumber schooners traveling between San Francisco and Alaska. Victoria was the perfect home base for him, although he spent many weeks at a time at sea. Hmm. His wife and children missed him. I would imagine so, yeah. Always a spiritual seeker, Wilson felt that something was calling him to a higher purpose. He never felt settled in his life with his wife and children. From John Oliphant's book, Brother Twelve, quote, According to his own account, these outward travels corresponded to an inner journey, a long and arduous search for knowledge. During his pilgrimage, Wilson visited temples, shrines, and sacred sites in many countries, including Egypt, India, China, and Mexico. He studied the religions of the world, investigated numerous occult doctrines, and immersed himself in the teachings of theosophy. He also practiced various spiritual disciplines by which he achieved higher states of consciousness. Throughout these difficult and often lonely years, Wilson sustained himself by his belief 
that he had a mission to serve mankind, and that his studies and travels were preparing him for a unique spiritual destiny, end quote. You know, a lot of these things start off with what seems anyways like good intention. Like, oh, you know what? Like, it sucks to be away from your family and stuff like that. But he's trying to awaken himself. He's, mm-hmm. he's going on a journey of enlightenment. Yeah. And you're like, well, that's, you know, I respect that. But that's never how they end. Isn't it funny? Yeah. None, none of the stories we tell end that way. <laughs> In 1912, Wilson left his family for good. No. Oh sailing for what was then called the Orient. He left his wife destitute with their two children and a mountain of debt. Thanks to some kind relatives, she and the children later moved back to New Zealand. Okay, well, that's a dick move. Yeah. Also in 1912, Wilson claimed in his writings that he had gone through a, quote, ceremony of dedication... This led him deeper into spiritual investigation and practice. Whether this was an actual occult ceremony or a completely personal experience is unknown. Regardless, it was a spiritual awakening for Wilson allowing him access to what he believed a dimension of spiritual reality beyond the limits of flesh and ego. Okie dokie. From his book, Foundation Letters and Teachings, Brother Twelve wrote, Quote, then it was that I understood that I had work to do, but I did not know anything of its nature or when it was to be. This was followed by twelve chaotic years of testing and wandering in all parts of the world. Outwardly, I was unsuccessful in everything I did, but the inner work of preparation must have been going quietly on. End quote. There's a lot of inner and outward going on with this fella. Everything is inner this and outward that. Outwardly, uh, you shouldn't have abandoned your family. Yeah. At some point during that turbulent 12-year period in San Diego, Wilson joined the Theosophical Society that had been founded by the late Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, more commonly known as Madame Blavatsky. Mm-hmm. From the Theosophical.org website, quote, Ever since its founding in 1875, the Theosophical Society has stood for freedom of thought and respect for all people regardless of race, class, caste, sex, or religion. To join the Theosophical Society, you are required to have no specific beliefs. You need only state your agreement with the Society's three objects. (laughs) One, to form a nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. Two, encourage the comparative study of religion, philosophy, and science. Three, to investigate unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in humanity, end quote. And that actually sounds pretty attractive. Yeah, once again, the, the core, the, the fundamentals sound incredible. Well, the Theosophical Society is still around today. Oh, really? Yeah, so in fact, the Canadian National Theosophy Convention will be held in North Vancouver at the Lonsdale Quay on August 17th and 18th. I'm very curious to know about that. How many people attend? Uh, What are these individuals like? It's like 60 bucks to attend right now. And from their website, it looks pretty fascinating. I might actually go. The website for the event includes a quote from Madame Blavatsky that goes, 
do not be afraid of your difficulties. Do not wish you could be in any other circumstances than you are. For when you have made the best of an adversity, it becomes the stepping stone to a splendid opportunity. And uh, those beliefs damn. really resonate with me. Like, seriously. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it, you know, there's a lot of, uh, in what's being said there, uh, what you'll learn going through self-care and coping techniques in mental health journeys, because you're it's about accepting the now, mm -hmm. accepting where you are, yeah, and ex just acceptance with how life is. And so there's a lot of that in there. Yeah. So, hmm. so these are universal beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Something happened with E.A. Wilson that twisted his thinking and beliefs away from pure theosophy, though. No. As with many self-professed gurus, he began to believe that he had special powers and abilities that connected him to supernatural beings and knowledge that was unknowable by the masses without his assistance. Yeah, so that's the point in which you become cuckoo. Yes. It, it, it is, yeah, when you think that you are the special one who is the conduit for the higher powers. This man claimed his body was no longer home to the mortal E.A. Wilson, but now inhabited by a spirit from ancient Egypt. From the book, Canadian Mysteries of the Unexplained, quote, Henceforth a disciple of the voice, one of the twelve masters of the great White Lodge, Wilson adopted the name Brother Twelve, end quote. <laughs> sure. Okay, so that's... Um... Let the fruit battery begin. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so what, does that mean, though, that there was a Brother Eleven? <laughs> it's really hard to explain, but if you were one to read, <laughs> you would you would realize why he called himself Brother Twelve. I don't want to get into it because it's just, it would take too long. Hmm. But he insisted that his followers and others address him only as Brother 12. I want to be Brother 42. On October 22nd, 1924, in the south of France, Brother 12 endured a second ceremony of dedication, this one even more powerful than the first. He's cagey about the details in his book, Foundation Letters and Teachings, but some have said he had visions and heard voices, perhaps even a vivid audio and visual hallucinations. Whatever it was, was profound to him, and his future was shaped by what he went through. From Foundation Letters and Teachings, Brother Twelve shared, quote, In this experience, I received a very marked widening of the normal consciousness, what is called, for want of a better term, inspirational writing, from being intermittent and occasional, now became a permanent faculty and could be used or shut off at will. This time was marked by a series of three very remarkable experiences, all within the space of three or four days, and of which I need not speak in detail, but will only say that they concern the work I have done in the past and that which I am called to do in this present life, so that past and present are linked for me. End quote. Heavy, heavy stuff there, Brother Twelve. Brother Twelve began to believe strongly that some kind of mystical messenger would appear on the planet in 1975 to make things better. Hmm, well, I don't think that happened, Mike. Well, you never know. He could have been a baby and was growing into a future leader of some sort. It, it's possible, and waiting until he or she is 82 to 
<laughs> to, to, ah, my time has come. Well, you never know. You, you don't. Wilson called the time around 1975, uh, and this messenger, a ship of refuge. Oh. He began talking of this to anyone who would listen. Brother 12 also adopted three truths from theosophist Mabel Collins' 1924 book called The Idol of the White Lotus and expanded on them in his brief booklet, The Three Truths, a simple statement of the fundamental philosophy of life. I, I, I suspect uh, 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 this kind of book named A Simple Statement will not be a simple read. It was. Was it really? Yeah, I found well, it pretty, shit. pretty easy going. Well, myth busted. Thanks, Mike. Mabel Collins wrote, Hear me, my brother. There are three truths which are absolute and which cannot be lost, but yet remain silent for lack of speech. The soul of a man is immortal, and its future is the future of a thing whose growth and splendor has no limit. The principle which gives life dwells in us and without us, and is undying and eternally beneficent, is not heard, seen, or smelt, but is perceived by the man who desires perception. Each man is his own absolute lawgiver, the dispenser of glory or gloom to himself, the decreer of his life, his reward, his punishment. These truths, which are as great as life itself, are as simple as the simplest mind of man. Feed the hungry with them. Farewell, it is sundown. They will come for thee. Be thou ready. Is acid involved? Yet. No. <laughs> nope. These sound like the kind of thoughts of somebody tripping balls. But here's here's where I have a problem. I find the last of the three truths, each man is his absolute lawgiver, to mm -hmm. be really problematic. It's reminiscent of the Thelemic tenet, do what thou wilt shall be whole of the law, popularized by the great beast 666 English author and occultist Aleister Crowley in his 1904 tome called Liber Al Vel Legis, or the Book of the Law. It's this anything-goes phrase that's a beacon for psychopaths, narcissists, and antisocial types with no conscience or moral center to justify all sorts of shitty behavior. Yeah, they're setting up, uh, foretelling, um, and excusing ahead of the fact mm -hmm. that they are going to do whatever the fuck they want, yeah. and you just got to deal with it. Yep. Crowley went on to say, There are no standards of right. Ethics is balderdash. Each star must go in its orbit. To hell with more principle, there is no such thing. That is a herd delusion and makes men cattle. <laughs> wow, okay, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, morals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ethics is balderdash. I wonder if Crowley expounded on that as he pooped on a friend's coffee table as he'd been known to have done. No way. Oh, yeah. No way. Well, if that... Okay, maybe I don't... Do as thou wilt shall be whole of the law. I'm yeah. going to take a dump on your coffee table right now. No, suddenly I, I'm down with this belief. <laughs> I can just start shitting on people's property. Isn't that horrible? It's terrible. Like, I hope to hell that they weren't also there in the room as it's... Can you just imagine your friend, you're talking about theology and like, ah, so what do you believe in? Well, I think... Oh, hold on a sec. Gonna take a shit on your coffee table. <sighs> 
back to our conversation. Like, I don't think toilet paper was probably handy. No. Oh, anyways. You can easily see how this philosophy would be central to the ideas developing in the mind of a man who would go on to form a cult. Yes. Later replete with scandal. Yes. Brother 12 later claimed he'd heard a clear voice over that three days in 1924, and it said, quote, Thou hast worn the double crown of Upper and Lower Egypt. Of the high knowledge and the low, humble thyself. Prepare thy heart, for the mighty ones have need of thee. Thou shalt rebuild, thou shalt restore. Therefore prepare thy mind for that which shall illumine thee. Whoa, that's intense. In Upper and Lower Egypt. Like, what about Side Egypt? No love for Side there Egypt? There wasn't any Side Egypt. No love for Side Egypt. Ugh. The, <laughs> the pharaoh, the best pharaohs always had the double crown because they united the kingdom. Oh. oh well, never mind. Why? He's going to say that, too. According to The Voice, Brother 12 was a reincarnated pharaoh, revered as a godman of some past Egyptian dynasty. Ugh. He continued his writing that came to him often while in a fugue or trance-like state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On April 27, 1926, Brother 12 claimed he received another message. This one was an invocation that came to him directly from the reign of the famous pharaoh Akhenaten. Oh, yes. Each of Brother 12's followers were supposed to reverently chant these words, called the Invocation of Light, upon awakening each morning and just before bed every night. O thou who bringest the dawn, who renewest the day without ceasing, whose splendor is the brightness of the morning, fountain of life and source of light eternal, increase in us thy knowledge and thy strength, thou who shinest in the east, who showest the west thy glory, and art supreme in the high heaven, thou fillest thy houses with light, and thy mansions with hidden power. Thou sustainest the seven lords, the shining ones who keep thy path, and we who serve thee through their ray. O light ineffable, increase in us thy wisdom and thy power. Dwell in us, we are one in thee. See, that's why I I can't do cults. I just don't have the dedication to chant uh, morning and night. Like that's I I can't remember that. <laughs> yeah, you gotta learn something. I, yeah, I'm not, I can't remember that. And then wake up like I'm just like oh coffee. I'm not like oh thou light of thy earth. Like no, yeah, no. I just like yeah, everything else cool. I'm down with. But <laughs> memorizing and chanting, no, not so much. No, he believed he was called to create a spiritual movement called the Aquarian Foundation, and gather followers in what was to be quote the center of spiritual energy and knowledge for the whole continent of North America, for the whole world in the not-distant future. I can't help. Every time I hear the Aquarian Foundation, I think of... Um, it's the age of Aquarian. No, no. Oh, God, I'm forgetting the director's name now, the, the Life Aquatic guy. Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. I keep thinking of a Wes Anderson movie every mm. time I hear that. It's not. Well, it should be. There's still time. The spot chosen was Cedar by the Sea, a small community about eight kilometers southeast of Nan- southeast of Nanaimo, and eventually, as we mentioned, to Corsi Island, and also just off the coast. Mm-mm. Before we dive deeper into Brother Twelve's time in BC and the aftermath, let's take a quick break. Let's do that.
On Brother Twelve's 49th birthday, July 25, 1927, the first general meeting of the fast-growing Aquarian Foundation was held with many believers and patrons in attendance. The foundation grew rapidly from that point and people flocked to be in the presence of the mystic promising true freedom. The application for membership was simple. You didn't have to live with Brother Twelve and his followers at Cedar-by-the-Sea, but you did have to commit to sending a certain amount of cash monthly <laughs> to the Aquarian Foundation at P.O. Box 23 in Nanaimo, B.C. This is Ernest Angeli. <laughs> Pretty good deal for assured salvation. Just send a bit of, right? bit of cashola. You buy your way to heaven. Right? Oh, Why not? Beautiful. That's what God intended. There were plenty willing to make a larger sacrifice and move to the area with Brother Twelve. Entire families, some with multiple children in tow, from all over the U.S. and Canada began to uproot themselves, giving everything they owned to Brother Twelve for what they thought was the betterment of the overall community. Uh, I try not to fault uh, the people. followers well, and, and whatnot. They're victims, actually. They're, they're absolutely victims. It you, There is frustration when you hear about people giving up everything to go follow uh, a, a cuckoo bird but uh it's it's manipulation they're being manipulated and they're victims and brother 12 wasn't exactly honest <laughs> surprise he was telling people he was born of an indian princess oh um okay no and he was also telling people that he'd never been to british columbia before that it was given to him by the spirits the idea to move there he found it on the internet yeah pretty much but Remember, he lived in Victoria in the early 1920s. That's right, 19, from, from New Zealand to Victoria. Exactly. So, oh well, it really gets interesting here. Wait, it wasn't already? In 1928, with the help of followers and prominent members of the KKK in the U.S., Brother 12 created a third party to go up against the Republican and Democratic parties. <laughs> He was supporting a well-known racist senator from Alabama named James Thomas Helfen. In the end, Herbert Hoover won the election, and Helfen did not even get a single vote from the Electoral College. But Brother 12 had made a huge impact. Okay, so what about like that core fundamental belief that he was supporting for quite a long time about not judging race, and race stuff? Well, gender? Well, maybe, you know, that didn't quite fit what his real ideals were, Scott. True narcissism. Undeterred by election loss, Brother Twelve traveled all over North America seeking initiates to his new spiritual community, especially among the wealthy. He had many convinced that there was an invisible empire of evil that was causing grief and suffering in the rest of the world, and only through following him could people find freedom from that evil. Following and money. Right. Yeah. Clearly the only path to salvation. A couple of Brother Twelve's favorite targets he claimed were involved with this empire of evil were the Jews and Roman Catholic Church. So again, Jeez. the Jews get another whooping. Right? From John Oliphant's book, Brother Twelve, quote, Brother Twelve's disciples believed that as a member of the Great White Lodge, he possessed the powers of an adept. He could leave his physical body at will and travel in his spirit body to any part of the world. He could enter locked rooms, listen to secret deliberations, read sealed documents. Nothing could be hidden from him. It was also believed that he could wield powerful occult forces in his battle against the, quote, Brothers of Shadow, the black adepts 
who were trying to lead mankind astray. End quote. It sounds kind of like the Illuminati. Oh, it, it's just a, it's a new world order. Yeah, it, it just the reality though, it's just a, another tactic of control. I can see and hear Things everything that you can't. Also, yep. And so you can't hide anything from me if you start to uh, sway from our belief or what I tell you to do. I'll know. Many fell for the charismatic little man's pontificating, drinking in his baloney like thirsty people who had been lost for months on Earth's driest desert. Well, there were, I mean, there's truth to that. They are lost people who fall victim. Yeah. Well, are, they're lost individuals looking for... Everybody's a seeker, right? And yeah, this is yeah. why anybody can fall victim to this yeah. kind of thing. It's It doesn't take a special kind of individual to get sucked in by a, a con man like nope. this. Nope, just the right place at the right time uh, yep. of loneliness and being lost and somebody comes along with perceived answers. Right. Fresh from the hell they'd seen during World War One, and seeing the excesses practiced in the 1920s, Many conservative folks believed the world was heading down a crazy, hedonist path. They they weren't wrong. Brother Twelve preyed on those thoughts as well. From John Oliphant's book, Brother Twelve, quote, Brother Twelve concluded that whether men knew it or not, they were rapidly approaching the most terrible conflict in the history of mankind upon the planet. Which, World War II, is (laughs) kind of true. They were moving swiftly toward the culminating struggle between two great opposing powers, the powers of darkness and the forces of light. The final battle was about to be fought. Armageddon. Yep. End quote. Yep, been waiting. And that's a, another familiar thing, uh, theme from cults, is Armageddon's coming. Yep. I'm preparing you for this. Well, religion, not even just cults. It, it's this. Well, not every religion. Well, yeah, you're right. But a, a good bulk of them, it's about. The end of days are coming. Yeah. So do what we say, so you'll be safe. One woman provided at least $25,000 to Brother 12 after only a three-hour meeting. She was the wealthy heiress of a Mayflower family. There were many others providing lots of cash to the growing community as well. One man, the poultry king of Florida, (laughs) Roger Painter, after giving much overtime already, provided $90,000 in cash to Brother 12 after a visit to the compound at Cedar-by-the-Sea. So a one-time donation of ninety grand in 1928. Yeah, so 25000 and 90000 in 1920s. Yes. Holy crackers. And these are just two of the donators. Yeah, There yeah, was yeah. much, much more yeah. that was coming in. Like, that's a lot of coin back then. Hell, it's a lot of coin now. From the book Canadian Mysteries of the Unexplained by John Marlowe, quote... Those who had chosen to live at the colony were expected to sever all ties with their former lives in the outside world. All that they had possessed was expected to have been converted into gold coins, which they would surrender when moving to Cedar-by-the-Sea. Brother Twelve then placed these offerings in sealed mason jars. He explained the necessity of this latter sacrifice in a personal letter. True Discipleship means a life dedicated to the service of humanity. It is diametrically opposed to the preferences of the personal self. No compromise between the two is possible. Therefore, the first requirement is the surrender of personal possessions, an actual, not a theoretical surrender. If the disciple is truly dedicated, it follows that all he has is included in the dedication of himself. 
This is the first requirement, and it constitutes at once a safeguard and a test which the insecure will be unable to face, end quote. So another control mechanism. Totally. He's telling you you're a weakling if you can't give up all your money. Yep, and you need to be fully dependent on me. 100% dependent on me. You have nothing but me. Yeah, so all cult-savvy folks will see this requirement as a huge red flag, obviously. If anyone is asking you to donate all your worldly possessions to them for your own, quote, spiritual health, you can probably correctly deduce that they're shitty business support. (laughs) That is a brilliant assertation. Shitty business. Yeah, Yeah, just run the other way. If somebody says, give me all your money and I will make you whole, it's like, guess what you can do with your whole. Yep. I'm going to keep my $20. Exactly. (laughs) Before the move to DeCourcy Island and more solitude, Brother 12 lived in what he referred to as, quote, the house of mystery on a cliff above the current boat ramp on Nelson Road. (laughs) I wonder if that place is still there. Yeah. Let's go. I want to go. It's believed that in this house is where Brother 12 began to abuse his power over his female followers in a classically evil way. Uh. For his own sexual gratification veiled in spiritual motivations. How is it all... Sex is always involved. That's a great question. It's always... It's a power thing. Except for the uh, uh, the Hale-Bop people. They were... There's still a sex component. Control of sex. Right. Brother 12 brought a married follower from New York, Myrtle Wells Baumgartner, into his bed bringing the first scandal to the group and the first hints of distrust among some of his followers. I just got to point out that Myrtle is like totally an early 1900s name. You can't imagine somebody named Myrtle being overly sexy. No, and you don't get a lot of Myrtles nowadays. Yeah. So sorry if you're a sexy Myrtle, but... uh, No, I mean like awesome, great. Yeah. Like you made a break. We don't mean to offend. It's just, you know, it's what first comes to mind. Exactly. Brother 12 called this a personal matter, but later claimed that he and Myrtle had been involved in ancient Egypt oh. in a previous life. Oh, okay. They were soulmates, and it was with her he was to father an heir for the group. They are like Isis and Osiris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, no problem justifying or finding a lie to fit the narrative of his... Yeah. Myrtle miscarried twice and was not healthy emotionally. She left in shame, and her husband later won a divorce settlement on the grounds of adultery. Yep. Yep, that'll do it. Governors in the organization were concerned that Brother 12 was slipping. Perhaps the, quote, black adepts had taken control of Brother 12's vessel and were forcing him to do outrageous things. Yeah, the black adepts are always doing that. Brother 12 denied there was any external influence on his behavior, again using spiritual excuses to explain it all away. The group against Brother 12 took him to court to wrest control of the foundation and, of course, its money from him. Although some of the cash was held in local banks, he kept much of it, most in gold, hidden from all. No one knew exactly where it all was. Oh, wow. In 1929, Brother 12 and his loyal followers split from the main group, he solicited a large donation, and this is when he purchased the property on DeCourcy Island. This is where he and the true disciples could live free of the influence by non-believers. They called the spot Brothers Center. Well, so again, more control mechanisms uh, separate from the ones who question. 
People who once held prominent spots in high society were cooking, washing dishes, scrubbing floors, chopping wood, farming, and doing other manual tasks, as directed by Brother Twelve, and his new partner, a tough Englishwoman named Mabel Scotto, known to the group as Madame Zed. That's a pretty dope name. Brother Twelve would tell anyone who muttered about the menial and often physically demanding tasks that these were just tests, and they would later reap rewards having passed what seemed to be never-ending initiation at uh, this point. I get frustrated at that kind of uh, justifying of just wanting to control. Madam Zed ran the group onto Corsi with an iron fist, keeping Brother Twelve informed of gossip and possible disloyalty in the group. Anyone who was seen as trouble was banished back to Cedar-by-the-Sea and the main group. They were taken there and dropped off by the tugboat that belonged to the group on the island. I'd like a tugboat. Me too. Madam Zed also kept Brother Twelve satisfied in bed. She also freed up his time to write and complete other pet projects around the compound. It was at this time people began to flee. Even some of the most fervent believers made their way back to Vancouver Island and even left the foundation altogether. Mm. In a 1930 ceremony performed by himself and not legally binding, Brother Twelve declared he and Madame Zed married. They took off to England and spent most of that year abroad. Okay. When he returned, Brother Twelve revealed a new plan for the colony. More work for everyone. <laughs> if they didn't like it, they would suffer the shame of banishment from his group and lose their salvation. Yep, and, and the money they have put in to Brother Twelve. Brother Twelve became more and more paranoid, thinking that even the most loyal followers were against him. This resulted in his becoming increasingly cruel to them. Oh, shit. At one point, the family of a girl who'd chosen to live with the group involved police, saying that she had been kidnapped. After chasing the authorities from the island, Brother Twelve demanded that the group purchase a number of rifles and ammunitions to repel future attacks on the group's freedom. Yeah, if this doesn't sound familiar to people, you well, don't know cults. It sounds a bit like David Koresh and Waco at this point. 100% what I was thinking. As people left the island and no new recruits came to replace them, the workload increased for those left behind. People were driven to exhaustion, working from 2 in the morning until 10 at night. Jeez. Injuries were frowned upon as a distraction, and group members were forced to continue working even if bleeding or in pain. Holy shit. One follower called this time not a brotherhood of love as he'd been promised, but a brotherhood of hell. People stayed on for fear of losing their place beside the prophet Brother Twelve. I would imagine, though, as indicated, the numbers are dwindling. Yeah, but he's got control over some people's yeah, minds, yeah, right? Yeah, well, especially once you've put this amount of time into something, you also don't want to stop because you feel like, well, that's an admission that I've wasted my time. Any stranger who'd set foot on the island was threatened and chased away on Brother Twelve's orders. Hmm. In 1932... Things came to a head. From John Oliphant's book, Brother Twelve, quote, The crisis came with the appalling treatment of Sarah Puckett. The 78-year-old retired San Francisco school teacher was told by Madame Zed that she must drown herself by falling backwards out of a rowboat so that her spirit could return to the colony and report on the afterlife. Sarah took this bizarre assignment seriously. 
For three consecutive evenings, she allowed herself to be rowed up and down in the deep waters off the point. But each time she tried to throw herself backwards out of the rowboat, she was unable to do so because she failed to hear the little voice that she believed called every good Christian to heaven when it was his or her time to die. At the end of her third macabre cruise, Madame Zed heaped such abuse upon Sarah for failing to do her duty for the cause, and the despairing woman broke down and wept. Oh, my End quote. That is terrible. That is like trying to convince somebody that they need to kill themselves, and when they don't, you, you just lash out at them. Yeah. Oh, my God. Brother 12 received a letter from the senior members of his most loyal followers still remaining on the island. They were done with him. The treatment of Mrs. Puckett was the last straw. Yeah. They were declaring independence from him and called for a meeting so they could put a stop to his now tyrannical reign once and for all. I see it going well. Uh, cult leaders typically love that kind of dissent. Like, hey, no problem, guys. Thanks for, for being a part of this. Brother 12 refused to hold the meeting and ran off the dissenters, taking them in groups back to Cedar-by-the-Sea in his ramshackle tugboat. Oh, that's not what I was expecting. During this time, when all seemed to be falling apart, Brother 12 was still able to convince another follower left on the island with him and Madame Zed to sign over what remained of her land in the United States. A few days after that, even the most loyal were taken and dropped back at Cedar-by-the-Sea. There, all the jilted group formed a coalition to continue their commune, but without their leader. Brother 12 was out. Hmm. The group, scared that Brother 12 was somehow watching them, sought legal help. Individually, people wanted their money back from him and began to sue. They believed Brother 12 was able to control black powers beyond them and that they would be punished for their disloyalty. Hmm. So they were terrified in doing this. Yeah, yeah. Some claim that Brother 12 was psychically attacking them as well. One man even believed Brother 12 had paralyzed him for a time using his mental powers. Damn. In court, the poultry king of Florida, Roger Painter, explained how Brother 12, working through fear and intimidation, kept people in line. He was using other powers as well. Painter claimed that Brother 12 could murder someone even without using physical force. He could kill them with his mind. Mind kill. Painter said... Quote, he would stand him up there in the center of his imagination, and meaning the person that was the target. Yeah. And he would begin his tirade, cursing and damning that spirit, and then going down this way with his hand and that way, cutting what they call the etheric, which is the finer body from which the physical gets its life. The operation was supposed to, that is, the physical organism, as I understood it from him, the physical organism would gradually become depleted and die. Painter claimed that more than one person died this way. Oh, man, that is weird. But there's no evidence to back that up. Well, uh, you know, there's diseases, there's uh, many illnesses that will take people away, and if you've... Yeah. So I, so, I mean, it could easily just be people passed away from natural causes, but, yeah. and he will assume it was him. Even though former followers were winning their court cases, it was all for nothing. Madam Zed and Brother Twelve vanished, and some of the riches went with them. Here's a report from Global's Paul Johnson about the end of Brother Twelve and the mystery that remains. We're on our way to De Corsi Island near Nanaimo looking for the few things that remain of a strange movement, its mysterious leader, and 
one of the most bizarre chapters in BC history. You can probably see a little bit of the fence there. And there was at first communal living, and then they, depending on how you advance within the society, would depend on whether you got to have your own cabin. Brother 12 had the women of the uh, group here patrol around the island. BC historian John Mitchell leads us up through the evergreens in Arbutus to a stone pile on the island, what's left of a rifle pit where women were trained to defend a utopian society and its gold. He could look into your soul, know what you were missing, what you wanted to, to see, and he could be that for you. He could give you that peace. He had over 40 cases of gold in quart jars. His preference was U.S. $20 gold pieces. At its peak, Brother 12's followers were building a new society centered around this home south of Nanaimo and the small farm on De Courcy meant to weather the apocalypse he warned was near. Like many charismatic leaders who offer spiritual salvation in exchange for your loyalty and your money, things eventually unraveled for Brother 12 and his followers here in the Nanaimo area. And at the end of three years, uh, the group didn't like the fact that he took a mistress. Brother 12, it turns out, had a taste for such non-celestial pursuits like women and gold. His followers revolted. There was a court case in Nanaimo, and in a fit of rage, Brother 12 sank his prized sailboat destroyed the de Courcy compound and took off. He managed to make it over to England. Well, there's a record that he died in Europe. Others think he faked his death and went on to enjoy the fortune he'd amassed. The doctor who signed his death certificate was also one of his followers. While well, some of the buildings from that time are still standing, no one has ever been able to account for Brother 12's massive stash of gold. Many treasure hunters have scoured De Courcy and other places around Nanaimo for the jars of gold, and many rumors abound to this day. Others say that he, he was seen in, in San Francisco, but with that kind of money, it's easy to disappear. And uh, there's been no other records of him after that point. In Nanaimo, Paul Johnson, Global News. Well, how about them apples? Whew, how about them gold pieces? Those 40 cases of $20 gold pieces, each coin weighing about an ounce, was estimated to be worth $500,000 in 1932. Holy crackers. The average price of gold was around 20 bucks an ounce. So, today, gold is worth $1,875 an ounce, oh. making that fortune that no one has been able to find worth over $34 million. Okay, I got two shovels now. Well, I think we need a boat and a metal detector as well. Right. Brother 12 and Madam Zed had to have been traveling light when they absconded, so many believe there's still gold to be found. Many of his followers said that Brother 12 would wander off alone into the forest, perhaps each time he was taking gold with him to bury in some yet undiscovered spot. Interestingly, there's a young reader's book called Brother Twelve's Treasure written by Amanda Spottiswood and illustrated by Molly March. The story follows a group of kids aged 8 to 16 in 1936 who go hunting for Brother Twelve's gold along the BC coast. 
The book is available on Amazon, and I read bits of it with my script subscription. It's pretty good. Sounds like uh, uh, Goonies Part 2. Right? Is ready. That's it for this week's story. Huh. Wow. Uh, I'm so fascinated by cults. Yeah. And cult leaders. Yeah. Um, it, it's crazy how, like, on the outside, you can all, you're like, no, I see where this is going because they typically yep. always go in the same direction. It's yep. the same. So you always sit there and look at it going like, how do people keep falling for this? But as we talked about, it's really, really easy to fall victim. Yeah. Pe- really, people want to believe yeah. in some, that something outside themselves can save them yeah. from whatever it is that they perceive as persecuting them or yeah. holding them back. Yeah, it, exactly. And so it's just, I, I think it's the psychological component that really gets me. In what that, way? Well, just like, understanding the psychology in somebody who needs that kind of control mm-hmm. and then understanding the psychology of somebody who's willing to follow. Well, and also back to the perpetrator, understanding the psychology of somebody who is willing to torture someone like yes. that. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really, it, it, the whole manipulation, you know, uh, that need for control. So before we go, we uh, want to do our typical Patreon shoutouts, and there's quite a few of you this week. We That's great to hear. Appreciate that very, very much. So hang on while we <laughs> look at our list here. First up was Amy Driscoll from Palm Coast, Florida. The name is very familiar to me. Yeah, I know. I, I recognize it too. Maybe she's a Yumber Yarder. Yeah, yeah. But thanks, Amy. T. O'Donnell from New Westminster, British Columbia. Oh, sweet. Scott's old stomping grounds. Yep, my hood. Thanks, T. Kayla Hoffer from Calgary, Alberta. Hey, Kayla. Amber Breaker from Austin, Texas. Breaker, Breaker, we got an Amber. (laughs) There you go. Brenda Jones from Cheshire, Great Britain. Oh, sweet. Cheshire. Cheshire. I wonder if she has the smile like a Cheshire cat. She does. It's mandatory. Exactly. Thanks, Brenda. Yeah. Delaney Linderman. Delaney, that's a cool name. I thought she was from uh, Norway. She is. Okay. Yeah, she's Norwegian mm-hmm. by trade. Okay, so she's there for work. She's there, exactly, Mike. But so where is she from originally? She is from also Norway. Well, that doesn't make any sense it, it, then. It, it's, it's a weird life she lives. <laughs> what does she do? Oh, she's a, what was it? I, I It was on the tip of my tongue. Uh Oh, yeah, she's a bird nester. Oh, so fantastic. What, what they do... They nest birds. No, you would think, but no. Um, they find birds too frail to, to make their own nests, and they make the nests for them. They That's hand, nice. They hand make it. It's a, it is one of the more uh, compassionate trades out there. There you go. So thanks for all your bird nesting. Excellent. Yeah, she is. Sophie Viber from Parts Unknown, but that looks like a very French name. Sophie. Sophie. Viber. You trying to figure out where, where her she story? makes uh, a great French onion soup, I hear. She does. For a cobbler, you wouldn't expect that. What? She's a cobbler. Does she make it in shoes? Does she serve it in a shoe? You, Yeah, you see where this is going. That's yeah. exactly what she does. Wooden shoes. Well, that, that would imply Dutch. <laughs> Mike, don't. This is serious business. Okay, this gotcha. Is, let's gotcha. not belittle what she does for uh, a trade and for uh, her fun. Okay. So, yeah, 
She's, and you've got to try the French onion soup in, in a shoe. <laughs> I will. Yeah, oh, man, it's so good. Stephanie Coward from Ottawa, Ontario. Oh, hey, Stephanie. Libby Vaughn from Hillsboro, North Carolina. Hey, Libby. Kelly Seton Coolidge from the Spokane Valley in Washington. Oh, sweet. That's close I, by. Yeah, I drove through there last year. Yeah. Ryan Brown from Hamilton, Hamilton Ontario. Hey, Ryan. No E in his brown, though. No. Nikki Dykema from Victoria, B.C. Hey, hey, Nikki, get a shovel. Yeah. We're, we're going to go find some gold. We're going to go find some gold. Brittany Corcoran from Miami, Florida. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Miami in the house. And Stephanie Smith from Brockville, Ontario. Hey, Stephanie. Thank you. How about them apples? Lots people? of apples. Well, lots of good lots, apples. lots of apples. Lots of people providing us with some donut money. That's super awesome. Yeah. It's super awesome. Yeah, we can uh, keep our head above water for another month. I bathe in donuts, and so without these contributions. Scott bathes, bathe, babes, you babes in donuts. <laughs> I babes in donuts. So without well, these contributions, I'd have nothing to bathe in. So we just mentioned Brittany Corcoran, I do believe. Yeah. Or was it a different Corcoran? Yeah. Brittany Corcoran. Interesting. So here it is. Did she thank double you for, donate? Thank you for, yeah. Oh. Well, unless this is a, a different Brittany Corcoran. Well, I mean, it's possible, but. No, it looks like it's the same email address. But she says, thanks for making my day great with your podcast, Brittany. Missoula, Montana. So it's interesting that she gave a, a Florida address. I'm curious. Brittany. Very curious. Which if we send you stuff to, to the Florida address, will you get it? Maybe she's going to school in Missoula. It could knows? be. Yeah, who knows? Because there's a university there. Uh, okay. There's a good book by John Krakauer there uh, written about the Missoula uh, school. It's quite disturbing, but oh, okay. it's a good book. Wow. Wow. So there you go. Thank you, Brittany, very much for a double... Double donation. Double, double dipping. Not so kind of you. Yeah, we uh, we really appreciate it. And here's another friend of ours from the Yumber Yard, Marinda Differt. Oh. So buy us more poutine, it says. Okay, done. Yeah, we appreciate that. We certainly do. Thanks so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for one-time support, you can send us donut money at via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And if you don't do it already, please subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Interestingly, we got a, a voicemail or two oh. here this week. So. Oh, exciting time. So, so just bear with me a sec. I'm going to bear. Here's one from a local listener. Uh, this is Nisa. I'm actually calling from Surrey, BC. Um, <laughs> I love the podcast. Um, one, episode 70 hit me on a personal note because I actually grew up beside that guy, which is super creepy. Anyways, uh, love the show. Keep going. This is my first voicemail. Okay, bye. Thanks. <laughs> so she grew up next to, next to uh, Matthew. Yeah, the Taylor Van Deest case. Ooh. Oh, man. That, that, I can see why that uh, uh, would hit you. Yeah. That, that, that was a terrible, terrible case. But and, it was uh, a very cute voicemail you left. It was. Very upbeat for, uh, for, uh, for, the, 
for for having lived next door to that guy. Yeah. So it just goes to show you, people are resilient folks. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's another one. You guys, I am so happy that I found you. I found you probably a couple of months ago, and I have never been more complete. I can listen to you guys, and you guys continue to actually do a show and not have any other weird conversations in between. You guys get straight to the point, but you also have your own input, and I completely appreciate it. You guys, I love you, both of you. Well, my name is Kara, and I come from Colorado, and that's in the United States. And um, I can't wait to hear you guys every week, so keep it up. Just absolutely love you, too. You're adorable. Well, we love your passion for the show and for us. We really appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it, very, it, it's nice to get complimentary uh, messages like that, for sure. It is, because, you know, you we live most of our life just going through the motions of, like, hopping on buses or going out to eat and nobody caring. And so when you get messages like that, it's it's super sweet. We really appreciate that. And now that we're done with voicemails, we do have a promo this week promo 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 our friends at the 36 times podcast have updated their promo lily and krista are pals from nova scotia well let's get to playing yeah let's listen to their new promo it's 36 times podcast.podbean.com yeah hey lily oh hey krista did you know in your lifetime you'll cross paths with a murderer 36 times oh, i did and now listeners so do you. We're 36 Times, a Canadian true crime and dark discussions podcast. Each week, we discuss crime and culture in Canada with a little kooky on the side. Topics will range from mental health in the penal system to ghost towns to cute animals doing crime. You can find 36 Times wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so there we go. Uh, another promo from Lily and Krista. Uh, that is pretty cool. We, very much. That's a great, great promo. So thank you, and make sure you listen to their show. Do it. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and or. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Spread it. Do it. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and uh, yeah, don't drive drunk or high. I think I might make that a regular thing. Sure. It's always good advice. Yeah, don't drive drunk or high, and don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.